Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to, you, to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. These are tough words of our Lord Jesus, and these tough words continue at verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is speaking, and he says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus goes on to speak about the same kind of thing in the 19th chapter of Matthew's Gospel at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, and he's quoting Genesis chapter 2 here, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So concludes Jesus, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. At verse 10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. And then one more brief passage from the prophet Hosea in the second chapter, verse 16. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will take you for my wife forever. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have told us in Holy Scripture, and our Lord Jesus uses these same words that we cannot live by bread alone, but only by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray that you would take the fallible words that now are spoken and breathe through them your living word, your powerful word, that we might know the life to which you have called us in Christ Jesus. So speak and grant us ears to hear in Christ's name. Amen. Let me say before the sermon begins, please uh, do find the sermon notes that are in your bulletin. On one side, you've got a bio of Jonathan Edwards. I hope you will read that. But then there are notes for the sermon, and today's sermon is very much a teaching kind of a sermon, so I think you will find it very helpful to have them open through the words that I now have to say. And if you're watching online, there's a way to download those notes as well, though some of the verses I quote are going to be coming up on 
your screen. So through the fall and through the winter, our sermons have been focused on the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is a body of teaching in which Jesus covers a lot of territory. He speaks, for example, about the fundamental principles of happiness, a happy life, when he speaks about the Beatitudes. He speaks about the importance of living an effective life in the public world when he speaks about salt and light. He speaks about controlling our thought life when he tells us that the commandment to murder is not just about actually murdering someone, but it's about our murderous attitudes within our inner being. He speaks about the authority of the Bible for our lives when he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They are still relevant. This is still God's word for us to this day. He speaks about the spiritual life when he tells us that we need to forgive other people because God has forgiven us. And he speaks about it as well when he teaches us to pray. If you want to know where in the Bible you find the Lord's Prayer, it's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And elsewhere in the sermon, Jesus also speaks about prayer, speaks about the spiritual life, and he speaks about the financial life. When he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then there's today's passage. And sometimes I preach through a series of sermons precisely because it leads me to preach on passages I would rather not preach on. So we come today to a passage of Scripture in which Jesus speaks about the intimate life. He speaks about all these other areas of life, and then he speaks about the intimate life, our private lives. He speaks about sex, and he speaks about marriage, as if to say nothing is private to God. No sphere of human life is beyond God's interest. Now clearly, when we think about this subject over the past 60 years at least, though I'd say, throughout human history. Uh, there's been a revolution in our thinking about sexuality. There are all kinds of views about sexuality. But you go back to the 60s, and we have what we call the sexual revolution. And in fact, back in the 60s, in those days, our denomination, which was then known as the United Presbyterian Church, uh, wrote a confession of faith, which is now in our Constitution, called the Confession of 67, or 1967. The Confession of 67, you'll find some of this in the sermon notes that are in the bulletin. These are some of the words that are in the Confession of 67. It reads like this. The relationship between man and woman exemplifies in a basic way God's ordering of the interpersonal life for which God created mankind, bound up with the way God made us. Anarchy in sexual relationships is a symptom of our alienation from God, our neighbor, and ourselves. Our relationships are not what they ought to be. Our perennial confusion about the meaning of sex has been aggravated in our day, this is the 1960s, remember, by the availability of new means of birth control and the treatment of infection by the pressures of urbanization, by the exploitation of sexual symbols in mass communication, very much going on today, and by world overpopulation. And then there are words about the church. The church as the household of God is called to lead people out of this alienation into the responsible freedom of the new life in Christ. And then skipping a little bit, the church comes under the judgment of God and invites rejection. When it fails to lead men and women into the full meaning of life together or withholds the compassion of Christ, 
from those caught in the moral confusion of our time, withholds the compassion of Christ from those caught in the moral confusion of our time. When it comes to the responsibility of the church, I would have to say that the truth is that the church, and that includes me, I'm a professional within the church, has not done a particularly good job of sorting out the confusion of our people with regard to these matters, and at times, desperately, sadly, has let evil triumph. So that while on the one hand some churches and leaders have held strongly to traditional standards, and I am one of those who does that, they have often done so with a profound lack of compassion for those people who struggle. And then they have glaring excuses for their own weaknesses and their own faults and their failings, which have risen up, as you well know, in all kinds of situations in recent years. And then on the other hand, there are those churches which have shown enormous compassion in this difficult area of life, and they've done so by almost abandoning any traditional standards for sexual intimacy at all. And caving in, in my opinion at least, to the secular mores prevailing in the world around us. And while this does indeed present us with a situation which at times is truly horrible and evil, if there is any comfort to be found in this world filled with dilemmas around about us, then perhaps it lies in the fact that in the weakness of the church in this time, perhaps it lies in the fact that as the Confession of 67 puts it, anarchy and sexual relationships as a symptom of our alienation from God, our neighbor, and ourselves, and the perennial confusion about the meaning of sex has been the way it has been, both inside the church and outside the church, from time immemorial, from the beginning of time. Certainly going back to Jesus' day, and not just back to Jesus' day, but way beyond that, back at the very least, but even more than that, I'm sure, to the time of Moses, when 1,300 or 1,400 years before the time of Christ, the issue of divorce was debated, and there's an allusion to this in our passage of, of Scripture today. In the Judaism of Jesus' day, a lively debate was uh, taking place between two schools of Jewish rabbis, rabbinic thought. There's Rabbi Shammai on the one hand and Rabbi Hillel on the other. The followers of Shammai were the conservatives. They took the tough line, no divorce. Well, maybe adultery, but no divorce was basically their view, though some people forget that this was also a way of protecting women because outside of marriage, there was no really good way of support in those days. But on the other hand, there was the more liberal Hillel, and his name may be more familiar to you, basically said, if she burns the dinner, and this is, of course, a patriarchal statement, if she burns the dinner, mm, let her go. Pretty much exactly what's said there. Then to the north, you go to the north out of Palestine, you go to the north and to the west up to Greece and then on to Rome, to people who considered themselves the real modern folks of the day. Things were, of course, much wilder than they were in Palestine. A couple of philosophical views dominated the day, which had massive ramifications for the issue of sexuality, and those views had to do with the body, the view of the physical body. And these Views actually are quite pertinent to today's world as they were to the world in which Jesus lived. So back then there were those who said, on the one hand, the body is dirty, don't touch it. Body is dirty, just don't touch it. If you want to be truly faithful, then sexual abstinence is exactly what you need to be aiming for. A view embraced, I would say, unfortunately and biblically inaccurately, by much of the church, at different times of church history, but the body is dirty. And then, on the other hand, you've got those who say, 
Well, actually, the body is irrelevant to spiritual matters. The body is irrelevant to spiritual matters, to all things spiritual. What you choose to do with your body is neither here nor there, is of no interest to God or spiritual things, and is certainly nobody's business but your own. So that on this view, anything goes. So you've got nothing goes on the one hand and anything goes on the other, and I'm sure you've got all kinds of views in the middle, but these are the two extremes philosophically which were going on in the Greek and the Roman world at the time of Jesus. And these views have had an impact at various times in history, as I mentioned, but today especially, irrelevant to the spiritual life is the dominant view. And these views come into play not only in the hot topic issues, the LGBTQ plus issues, but actually in heterosexual relationships as well today. So you hear, and maybe I'm exaggerating a little, but I'm not sure about that, sex is just a recreational sport. That's all that it is. Or I, and this is more serious, I am not my body, and my body is not me. A divorcing of who we are from our bodies. Or whatever your body tells you to do must be right. No matter what the rules may say, don't choose the rules. Choose what you feel is good and right at the time for you. So this is going on today in our world, but it was going on in the ancient world in the time of Jesus and in the time of the early church. And it was into this cultural ethos and into this milieu that Jesus and the first Christians spoke into a world that is just not that far different from the world we live in today, at least in these respects. And Jesus speaks into this world in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've heard, and in other parts of the gospel, as we've heard, and then we find it in the New Testament as well in different places. And what I want us to do today is very quickly just to give you what I think are the, the highlights of the fundamental principles that guide the early Christians and the Lord Jesus in thinking about these matters of intimacy and sexuality and marriage. Our time is short. I really encourage you to pull the notes out and have a look at what's in there at the scripture passages I'm going to refer to and at a little bit of the outline. It's not exactly the outline of the service, but it may help you to stay on track with this today. I want to share with you five uh, propositions or five fundamentals that I believe guide the scriptural view of sexual intimacy and marriage. Let me break it down into these five brief points. The first has to do with compassion. Compassion. What the Confession of 67 says right at the end, often too lacking in this kind of a discussion, compassion is desperately needed when it comes to these matters of intimacy. And we see this not in a passage of Scripture that we read, but in the eighth chapter of John's Gospel, in a story about a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. It's clearly a setup, because those who want to catch her out happen to be there at that time, and the man sort of disappears, and it's all against this particular woman caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus has absolutely no time for these people who are out to catch other people in this particular area of life. He has no time for them whatsoever. Whoever is without sin, he says, throw the, the first stone. And he doodles in the ground and they begin to disappear one by one. All of us are plan B people. None of us are plan A people. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the cross. We wouldn't need a savior. 
So we cannot even speak about these things unless we know that in that sense, we are all in the same boat. This is a struggle for all of us. Our broken relationship with God, as the confession says, leads to alienation and difficulties and perplexities all the way down the line. So compassion is what Jesus shows. But that doesn't mean he doesn't speak in a tough way, either to the woman caught in adultery or at other times on these matters of sexuality. Indeed, he does speak tough to the woman and in our passage of Scripture in particular when it comes both to adultery and to divorce. To the woman, he says, go sin no more. It's wrong. I'm not out to condemn you, but that's not God's intent. And he says difficult things when it comes to divorce as well. He doesn't completely close the door on that, but he makes it absolutely clear that this should be the very last thing in our mind because if you're heading down that road, you may be causing yourself to commit adultery further down the road and somebody else to do so as well. If you remember the passage, go back and have a look at it. Jesus often teaches to get a reaction and an effect, and this is what he's doing right here. This is serious stuff, he is saying, this business about a covenant made in marriage. But my point at this moment is just this, that while compassion begins the conversation, it does not eliminate, in Jesus' mind at least, high standards. And those two things go side by side with each other. And one of the reasons for the high standards for Jesus is that he goes back to the days of creation and says, this is why God made us. This is an ordination from the beginning of time. And no matter what else is going on in life, this needs to be our primary standard. Human marriage between a man and a woman is not merely a human social contract, a human construction that we are free to amend or change at will. But something, says Jesus, that is ordained by God from the beginning. Now, we have to be clear here. The state, our nation, other nations, they don't necessarily abide by the teaching of Scripture we live in a world in which there are Christians and non-Christians with different kinds of standards, and the standards in a state may or may not reflect the standards that Jesus himself sets. And those standards in a state need to be fair and just for all within the community in which we live, the broader community within which we live. But here's the point with Jesus. No matter what the state says, and I agree that the standards for the state and the standards for the church are quite potentially two different things, no matter what the state says, says Jesus, and indeed Jesus says, no matter what Moses says, none of that changes God's intention from the beginning. The institution of marriage ordained by God from the beginning of time. So we find Jesus quoting the book of Genesis, quotes chapter 2 in Genesis, which sets the standard for him. So Jesus says, have you not read? that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus concludes, having quoted Genesis, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God's intention for marriage in creation, lifelong union, between the man and between the woman. And this is God's intention, at least in part, this union between those who are similar but different 
Because this is the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with God. Because this is the kind of relationship that God wants each of us, every single one of us, to have with God. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, your relationship with God. But in a sense, that relationship begins with a proposal of marriage. Where God proposes marriage to every single one of us. I want to marry you, says God to each of us. How remarkable, how incredible is that? I don't just want you to have this casual relationship with me. I want to enter into a relationship in which there is a covenant promise with you, says God to you and me, and which will last forever and ever. And we need to ask ourselves, is this who God is to us? Do we think of God this way? as entering a relationship of marriage, of love, of intimacy, and of absolute commitment with us. This is clearly the God of Scripture. So you go back to the prophet Hosea, who picks up on imagery that you find scattered throughout the Bible. But he says it most explicitly in Hosea chapter 2, and this too, I think, is in your sermon notes. He speaks of God's passion for a day to come in the future. When it's perfectly clear, you will call me my husband, and I will take you, he says to his people, I will take you as my wife forever. How wonderful is that for every single one of us? So first of all, to Jesus, compassion guides everything. We are plan B people, every single one of us, or we would not need a savior. But that does not stop Jesus from telling us what plan A is and challenging us with plan A, compassion doesn't change the standards of marriage, God's intention from the beginning of time. And then third, this relationship is important in part because it provides this God-ordained human imagery of the relationship that God, the creator, wants to have with us made in his image. And then fourth to Jesus, sexual intimacy also functions in the same kind of way in part as an illustration. So clearly in Genesis chapter 1, sexual intimacy is about procreation, it's about having children. There's no question about that. Go forth and multiply. But in chapter 2, sexuality, intimate sexuality, is seen as a gift, as an image of God's call for a couple, not just to connect. And in society, often marriage is seen like that. It's a contractual relationship between two people who remain like this. Not just to connect, but to intersect their lives one with the other so that they become something new. Something new is created in this relationship. A permanent new entity that the scripture calls one flesh. And again, we go back to Genesis 2 and what Jesus says there as he quotes it. Have you not read, says Jesus, that God said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, sexual intimacy, and the two shall become one flesh, one new community, one new family, in a sense, one new person, though individual identity is retained together. Sexual intimacy, the joining of a man and a woman, in this sense can be seen rather like the sacraments that we share in today, an outward sign 
of what God intends to happen internally within our lives, an outward sign of an inward spiritual truth, an invisible spiritual truth. And somehow, and as Presbyterians, we rarely define how this happens in the sacraments, somehow, in the physical action, something really happens in the relationship which binds us together in the sacraments with God, and in this case, with one another. So an outward sign of what God wants to really happen in our lives, not just the coming together of human lives, but the intersection of lives to create something as well. And then finally, one more thing. Marriage to Jesus is not a right in the scripture, but a calling. Marriage to Jesus is not a right, but a calling. It is not for everyone. Jesus makes this clear to his disciples when he responds to their shock at what he has to say. So we may be shocked at what Jesus has to say. and say, can't believe that stuff anymore. What you need to know is the disciples said exactly the same thing to Jesus back in his day. They were shocked by what Jesus had to say. And they responded in the same kind of way people would do just now. Hey, that's more or less impossible. So in Matthew 19, we read these words. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry at all. But Jesus said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are people who don't marry because of some reason of birth, Jesus goes on to say. People who don't marry because of circumstances forced on them, presumably divinely ordained, we hope, even if some of these are not positive situations. And then there are those who are unmarried because of the sake of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. Because God has some other call in their lives. And this is critical to know, to think of marriage in terms of call, in terms of what is it that God wants me or us to do. Critical both in marriage, especially when things are not going well, but out of marriage if we're single. There is a strain of Christian teaching, it's not as common now as it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, which says that you're not a complete person unless you have found the perfect partner in life, in human life. It is simply not true, biblically speaking. Our completion in life comes in the marriage relationship that we have with God. This is what completes us, this intimate covenant connection with the Lord our God who proposes marriage to each of us. Get that straight, and our other callings of all kinds fall into proper perspective. And they do so in the light of these principles that I've just shared. Once we see things that way, we need to be, and we must be, compassionate. Our lives don't always fit. Doesn't mean Jesus doesn't hold standard A up high, but they don't always fit. And is he merciful and gracious to us? You bet he is. But he keeps calling us to these high standards he sets. And the imagery, the imagery exists for our well-being in all kinds of different ways. The divine imagery and the fact that to interconnect, we have to let go of something in order to find something new. This is true of all of life. And when we begin to see life that way, 
then I believe the happiness that Jesus speaks about in the Beatitudes that he wants for every one of us begins to flow in our direction, hard as it may be. And none of the Beatitudes, by the way, are easy. Hard as it may be, this, this is the path of life that Jesus, who loves us, who adores us, who calls us into an abiding, permanent, covenant relationship with God that he wants for every single one of us to share in. Let's bow before God in prayer. Holy God, we come before you and we need your help. We are weak, yet you are strong. We at times are not wise, but you are wise. Lead and guide us and give to us the life that Christ wants us to have, knowing his mercy, but also seeking his call. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.